Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in History. This is Marcus Grodi, uh, co-host for this program with Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor Steenson. Good good day. How are you, Marcus? Good to join you again, Monsignor. Yeah. Um, we're going to dip back into Against Heresies. And I, I made a comment to our studio manager and, and Monsignor that this is episode number 48 uh, I don't think we'd ever thought we'd been almost an entire year on this book. That's equivalent to, I was going to say, two semesters at a at a local college. So those of you watching this, if you listen to every program, maybe you can try and argue to get some credit for this. You know, at least there you, go. you put yourself through it if you did. Um, and we've got 38, we're on page 500. We're beginning there today, and we're, we've got 38 pages to finish this long book. And I do believe we might be able to finish within four weeks. So we'll get it within the 52 weeks and we will get it a whole year. But as you mentioned also, Monsignor, at the end of of, of this particular translation, there are about uh, 30 or so pages of fragments and letters that might be worth going through. Right, Monsignor? Yeah, I, could, I think... I think we'd be very interested in looking at several of those anyway. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how we're doing there. But today we're going to, our goal today is we're going to start on page 500, section, uh, book five, chapter 21. And we'll, we'll just go back to a quote at the end of what will include the end of uh, chapter 21, but our goal is to get all the way through to page 513 to book 5, chapter 26, section 2. And there are aspects of this that deal with the Antichrist, that deal with uh, Irenaeus's reflection on the uh, apocalyptic prophecies that come from Daniel, Matthew, 2 Thessalonians, and Revelation. Uh, we're going to put those to next week, so we won't dip into those. We'll get into that next week because, and Monsignor, maybe you could give a little just heads up, because when we jump into Irenaeus's interpretation of Daniel, Matthew, 2 Thessalonians, and Revelation, and how it applies, we're dipping into a bit of a controversial interpretation of the end times. Yeah, we are, because Irenaeus represents that early um, movement in Christian theology that uh, argued for um, the literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, so um, that had been, by, by the next century, that had been pretty much set aside for a more spiritual interpretation rather than a literal interpretation of that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, so he is, he is a bit controversial on this point. I mean, there are still Christians today that hold his view. Oh, yes. Yes. And I, I know that when I was in yeah. seminary, I mean, even though everyone in my non-denominational, interdenominational seminary, evangelical seminary, all believed in Christ and all believed in the infallibility of Scripture, and we were all evangelicals, yet we were divided strongly on different camps. Premillennialism, postmillennialism. There were a few amillennials, not very many. Uh, uh, so all these different interpretations, rapture, non-rapture folk, and all over the place. The Catholic Church's view is basically amillennialism. We'll talk about that. Yes, and yeah. that was not the view that I held when I was in seminary. Nor, nor, nor was it mine. I remember as a kid going to Bible camp. Um, and every once in a while, they'd have what's called pillow night at chapel. You'd bring a pillow because the preacher was going to go on for a long time speculating about who the Antichrist was. <laughs> but it was riveting stuff. <laughs> yeah, and just the fact of the Left Behind series and how prolific it was and how many Christians there are out there just assume the rapture. Well, on the one hand... As Catholic Christians, and a very large percentage of non-Catholic Christians would say, no, the rapture is not biblical or not part of apostolic tradition by any means. Yet, we're going to find a quote in Irenaeus that the rapturists might say, see? And we'll talk about that next week. Or maybe the week after. We'll get to that. So any of the, the things that deal with the Antichrist and the second coming, and we'll, we're going to start next week on that. But what we wanted to do in this section is to pull out some reflections. Uh, we're going to first three... Well, the main thing we're going to talk about today as we entitled this is the apostate angel. So we're going to pull together all the things that Irenaeus says in this section about the devil. Uh, so if you will, it's a precursor to talking about the Antichrist and the beast and the dragon and all of that. Because behind it all, of course, is the apostate angel. But we're also, before we get to the specific discussion of the devil, there are three other quotes that Monsignor and I would like to pull out to focus on before we jump into discussion of the devil. Does that make sense, Monsignor? Yes, sir. Okay. So we're going to begin with the first uh, theme you'll find on page 501, the bottom, chapter, book 5, chapter 22, section 2. And what we find here is the Monsignor, the Irenaeus has already reflected on the temptation of Christ. And he, he waxed eloquently for a couple pages on his interpretation of the temptation of Christ. But what we find here is Irenaeus taking a step back from a pastorally perspective to kind of say, almost as if he's finishing his sermon, Monsignor. He's done his whole 
In those days, they preached longer than 12 minutes. In those days, you know, he was there for an hour. It was probably everybody. Well, in those days, they wouldn't needed pillows because they were used to people. This was their only entertainment on the block. So they would hear the long sermon on the temptation. So after the long sermon on the temptation, he draws to three conclusions for us. And as our usual technique is, Monsignor, I'll do the reading and I'll then pass it on to you for some of your thoughts. He says, and us, so Irenaeus is turning it around to us, Mm -hmm. who are released by the commandment itself, he hath taught first in our hunger to await the food which is given by God. Secondly, when we are set on the high places of God's universal free gift or trusting in works of righteousness or honored with great eminency of office, then in no wise to be lifted up nor to tempt God, but in everything to be lowly minded and to have ready for use the saying, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. As the apostle also taught in the words, not minding high places, but sympathizing with the lowly, neither to be taken with riches, nor worldly glory, nor present pomp, but to be aware that thou must worship the Lord thy God and serve him only, and not believe that being who falsely promises what is not his own. All right, Monsignor. Was uh, was Irenaeus, let me ask you this, was Irenaeus taking a shot at his fellow bishops? I don't think so. I think he was taking, remember, he's taking a, a lots of shots at the Gnostics okay. and their arrogance and their presumptuousness. I would guess that's where this is going. And I would, when I said that kind of tongue-in-cheek, I'm, I'm though, yeah. I still believe, though, he's, he's warning, he's warning his fellow, not speaking down to them, but side to side. Hey, guys, be careful. The same temptation that the devil used on Christ, he'll use on us. And perhaps I could, perhaps if I were going to try to paraphrase this, I might say um, he's teaching first um, to await the food which is given by God not to go off searching for, you know, truth wherever you think you can find it, but you receive it from the apostles and the, the apostolic tradition. It's that. And then the second point is... Before you go on to the second point, hold that. It seems yeah. like uh, Jeff Cavins, didn't he write a book uh, about I'm not being fed... Oh, yeah, I do remember that, yes. I think Jeff Cavins wrote a book about that. You know, the, the people who wander away from the church and they go, I'm not being fed. I'm not being fed here. And that's what he's warning against is this idea, yeah. of, I'm not being fed, so I'm going to go out and look somewhere else. No, no, no. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Of course, of course then, it's, then it, it's important to add a coda, coda to that, that um, woe to the shepherds that don't feed their sheep. Um <laughs> The second thing that really kind of spoke to me, to my heart, was um, the call to be humble. It, um, of course, you know, again, 
it's the arrogance of those Gnostics that he's writing about. But, um, but the idea of our receiving uh, these gifts of grace with humility is something I think that's timeless, reaches out to us. Yeah, if you will. I, I know I've said this before. I think our the technology that has so encompassed our lives for the last hundred years is going to be the downfall of our culture. I really believe that. And one of the ways that the, the internet and digital world is that it tempts multitudes of people to these things. I mean, now anybody can grab a camera and a microphone and, and do their own movies on the internet. And so much of what you find on Twitter and Facebook and these things is narcissistic. It's all about just assuming everybody in the world wants to know every time I burp. So there it is, you know. I mean, there it is on the. Think about it. I mean, that's people that they, you know, and yeah. I mean, that's kind of what Irenaeus is here. Guys, don't get caught up in this stuff. Don't. I mean, if we wanted to try to put this in kind of more a modern idiom, we think of how. People think that um, they have the right to exercise, quote unquote, private judgment in, in all these matters. So everybody is a theologian if he's got a camera and um, connection to the Internet and can. Yeah, I know I've said this before. Apologize for what I've said, but I, I've always liked this analogy. And that is in the old days when a joke was coined in Boston. Somebody, it wouldn't make it to L.A. unless it was a dang good joke. Think about <laughs> it. Because someone would have to tell someone, then they'd have to like it, and then they'd tell someone, someone would have to like it. And so it would take weeks before it would make it to L.A. And the only the good jokes that were made in Boston would yeah. make it to L.A. <laughs> Today, a joke is coined in Boston. It's in L.A. in a second. It's immediate. There's We've lost the editorial section, the editors of everything. The internet has gotten rid of that, except for the people that have control of Facebook, Google, Twitter, all those things. They'll decide what goes out there or not. I mean, that's, that's a new angle on this analogy that I hadn't thought of before. That's really happened just in the last year or so. Is it now... I mean, if I say something wrong on this, this thing could be off the Facebook in a second by just saying what Catholics believe. We can be silenced now. Yeah. So, yeah. but his answer is, in everything, be lowly-minded. In everything, be lowly-minded. And then the third point he emphasizes, Monsignor, is... Um, Again, that idea of you must worship the Lord thy God and serve him only. You must worship him at the top of 502. We worship the Lord thy God and serve him only. And, and we've said this before, is that Irenaeus would believe that that idea 
was planted in the heart of every single human being that's ever existed. It's a part of our conscience, is to worship the Creator in Him only. That's a part of our conscience. But the devil has challenged that, of course. Of course, um, you know, the, the what lies behind this, of course, is his, it's his exposition of the temptations of Christ. Right. Here, um, that, I mean, it's incredible how he develops this. This yep. is a really central point for St. Irenaeus. Yep. Right. This, this marks the the beginning of the end of the devil's reign. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. That's exactly right, Monsignor. He te- he interprets the, takes the temptation of Christ far more seriously than I think most take it anymore. That's correct. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I, I like what he says in this. Now, a second point uh, to pull out before we get into a bigger discussion is on page 503, the next page, um, at the bottom... Um, where Christ, society of Christ gathered up death into himself. And back, we're back into this recapitulation idea, Monsignor, that you talked about last week. Um, uh, if you jump up, if you will, ahead, the last part of section one, for together with the food they made death, also their own, since they aid in disobedience, and disobedience to God bringeth death. But then down below, um, um, for in gathering up the whole of man into himself, from the beginning to the end, he gathered also his death. So Monsignor, he gets into this discussion about his interpretation of the statement It's on the top of page 504, the statement that in the day that ye shall eat thereof, ye shall surely die. So he makes a lot of discussion about this idea that in the same day that Adam ate is when he died, in essence. And so when Christ gathers that up into himself, it's almost as if he's transported back to the very day that Adam ate, in which Christ gathered up that death. So he brings it all on to himself. And, he, you know, he locates that day as the sixth day, um, because if, if Christ is going to do all of this recapitulating or summing up, it's, I mean, he's, re, he's, he's renewing creation, so it has to fit in the original creation um, narrative, if you will. Yep. And the other thing I thought was interesting is that Irenaeus could not leave, um, un, he couldn't leave unmentioned, you know, the, the Lord's command or word to Adam and Eve that they would, the, the day they eat, they will die. Because um, yeah. Satan comes along and says, you're not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're still alive and you're... Um, yeah. You know, yeah, an interesting uh, and an, a very interesting analogy I've not heard people talk about. But when you look at the 16th century in the the Reformation ideas, there was some boldness 
that the reformers were doing that was going counter to their conscience that had to be a bit scary because the the definitive statement of the teaching of the church from at least beginning close to the time of Irenaeus, but solidly during Cyprian and Augustine, and that is outside the church, you'll die. Outside the church, you'll die. And all of a sudden, we start seeing people in the 16th century sticking their toes outside the church. I mean, you see what I'm saying? They're, 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 They're boldly going out there. Well, I've often thought that one of the universal ideas that led to this was this presumption that was a myth that if if you sailed your ship beyond the horizon, yeah, you're going to fall off the edge of the earth. There's there's serpents out there. There's all kinds of things you don't go there, and so that that had a way of keeping people in. But in the 1490s, people started going beyond the horizon. And they came back. They didn't die. So all of a sudden, a whole world of people are going around Magellan. You know, everybody's going around the yeah. world. Columbus is going back and forth. The people are going all around. Because you can go off as the... You almost see that as a preliminary to the boldness that came in the Reformation period. And it's parallel, as you said, with what Irenaeus is touching on here. God says, the day you eat, you're going to die. And the devil says, you ate that apple, you didn't die. And so there's the beginning of rebellion. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Beginning of rebellion. All right. Um, but it is, I, that is, I like the way you pulled out that quote, though. Um, um, just that discussion about how it was on Saturday or on the sixth day is really meant to hammer home the point that, um, uh, how did you put it in, that Christ has um, gathered up death unto himself. Um, It's part of his work of recreating. One thing that struck me as I read that was, uh, if 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 we reflect on this idea of Christ gathering unto himself from the very beginning, from the moment Adam ate all the sins of the world and the resultant death unto himself. And you see him sweating bullets in Gethsemane, sweating blood, excuse me, in Gethsemane. So that when he's on the cross... He has gathered unto himself the sins of every human being that have ever lived and the death of every. To me, as I was thinking about that, it it put into a perspective that I hadn't thought about his statement when he says, Father, forgive them. That statement isn't just for the Romans there. Right. It's for all those people. It's for everybody. Yeah. So he gathers it all up, and then in that one statement, he he redeems. 
Yeah. You know, I, I just, not to get too far afield, but um, this Lent, I was using John Henry Newman's um, little, uh, he's got a set of meditations on the Stations of the Cross. And I was deeply moved by that, how he w- would identify himself with the people that the Lord yeah. died for. Every, every pain inflicted on the Lord he he was part of it because of his sin. Um, it's just a wonder. It was just a marvelous way to look at that. You know, in there's so much in here that we could go through, and we we can't about the sixth day and his passion. He says, by his passion, conferring on man a second formation, that which is out of death. I mean, there's so much in there. That's at it the top is. of 504. I mean, just great statements in here. And again, the reason that I, some of you might be saying, well, this is, about, this is what we all believe. What's the big deal about it? Well, sometimes, number one, we take it for granted. But it, to me, it's fascinating to see in the early days of the church, these theologians gleaning from this, establishing things which then became the foundation for the faith that we've shared for for 1,800 years from the time of this. So... At the very end of uh, that paragraph, Marcus, on page top of page 504, yeah. um, where he refers to the thousand years, mm-hmm. how would you explain that? I was, I was not sure about that one myself. For say they, a day of the Lord is as a thousand years, but Adam did not add on the thousand years, but died within them, fulfilling the sentence upon his transgression. Um, is that is that his way of just basically keeping within his narrative about the sixth day? The sixth day is as a thousand years. Well, if you go to the sentence before, but some, on the other hand, refer Adam's death to the thousandth year. For say they, a day of the Lord is as a thousandth year, but Adam did not add on the thousand years, but died within them, fulfilling the sentence upon his transgression. Yeah, I, you know, when it comes to a lot of these things, I, I admittedly am about the dullest knife in the drawer. Uh, when it no, comes I'm to a little dollar, I think. You know, I mean, uh, um, yeah. and, um, but I think he's in the back of his mind, he's getting ready to deal with the thousand years tribulation and all that. And so he's dealing, I'm guessing, folks, that he's, he's dealing with these, all these erroneous views out there on what those thousand years mean. Um, and he's going back to this idea that the day he ate is the day he died. That's why a thousand years is as a day. Yeah. And I think and that's, that, that's how I, that's how I was reading it, yeah. but I wasn't sure about it. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. It makes me think about it, folks, that the day we sin is the day we die. There's a direct connect there, folks. That's why we need confession. That's why we need surrender and humility to turn to. We, we take our, we take sin so flippantly. Yes. Um, we take sin so flippantly. In fact, I was thinking that the internet 
and the the digital world that has so multiplied our words infinitely. And we think about our Lord saying that we'll stand before God for every word that comes out of our mouth. We, we don't even take that seriously anymore because, I mean, Monsignor, you and I have said a few words on this program for the last year. Uh, we'll be held accountable for every word. Do we take that? Nah, no, we don't worry. And then the internet. I mean, it's just crazy what we get accustomed to hearing yeah. now. And it it doesn't even bring us a blush. Well, this is saying on the day you eat, it's the day you die. And Christ took all that to himself on the cross. All right. Just, we're just scratching the surface of some of these great comments here. A third thing, uh, again, before we get to the issue of the, of the apostate angel, is on the bottom of page 505, um, uh, beginning in the middle of 505, he gets into this discussion about government, magistrates, the powers that be. And he's saying that because of man's sinfulness, God set over him the fear of man and instituted governments. That's my summary of it. And um, let me read that little section. When I first read this, it, it struck me as, as interesting, Monsignor. He writes, For because man, standing off from God, became so like a wild beast as to account his very kindred an enemy and to pass his time without fear in all restlessness and in murder and in covetousness, God set over him the fear of man, for they knew not the fear of God, that they being subject unto man's power and bound by their law might attain unto some degree of justice and mutual moderation, fearing the sword openly set forth. Now, you know what first crossed my mind is that what's the first thing that God did after the flood? And that is he put the fear of man in the beasts. And I see that on my farm all the time. You know, I've got domesticated cows, but there's still, they, 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 there's a hesitancy. Well, why is it after all that I've done with these cows and taking care of them, and I've never done a thing to hurt them, yet they still, there's one, my one heifer uh, practices the social distancing rules today. She will not get closer than six feet from me. Um, why is that? What's it a part of her nature? And we see it pervasively in nature, if you spend time, that they, all the animals have, as a part of them, this fear of us. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's a, the fear of men for man. And I, I mean, you know, it's interesting to think of this in the context of how the apostles taught about respecting the emperor, praying for the emperor, obeying the um, the laws of the state insofar as they are just. Um, it's, it's fascinating how 
it's fascinating how soon Irenaeus here, in a time when the empire is still not Christian, it's pagan, um, he still recognizes that secular government has a role to play, a function to play in, in ordering the um, desires and the lawlessness of, of human beings. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm hesitant to recommend it by any means, but Martin Luther himself uh, wrote a, a very popular letter in, in which his, his argument was that the, the secular governments are as much servants of God as, as the hierarchy of the church. There's much a part of serving God. There's, you know, we've got to be careful with of always looking down on on the secular governments. Uh, but he said, no, there's much a part of the church. It is interesting. I've I've been <clears throat> in my own sort of self examination. I sometimes catch myself that I, you know, I I just don't care about the government anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and then I realize. That's not really what the apostles taught us. Yeah, it's it's a tough time, <clears throat> and the devil's alive and well. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But yeah. but still, the apostles in their epistles and the early, recognized that that this is all a part of how God expresses His will. And to a certain extent, we have to accept that the person in that power is there because it's a part of God's plan. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we have to just agree with everything our government says is true. Because we are called to take a stand against a bad law. But that means we accept the consequences because we accept that government as a part of God's government. And if the governor isn't following his conscience, because he has a poorly formed conscience, and they makes a law, it's our government. And within, it, it seems to me that within, to the extent that I can in good conscience follow a law that I may not disagree with, but it's with, I can follow it in good conscience, then I will follow it. But if I decide that that law is wrong, and I can't do it, then I take a stand against it, and then accept the consequences. And that's why we had martyrs in the early days of the church. Right. That's right. Because he, yeah, because Irenaeus is saying that all government, whatever all whatever government does, it's not all right. He, you know, a little bit further down the paragraph, um, he will indemnify um, the leaders um, if uh, they're they're having the laws and are the clothing of justice. They shall be asked no questions nor suffer penalties for whatever they may have done justly and lawfully. So so he's not giving them carte blanche. Right. Um, they have to 
I guess we'd call this the natural law yeah. in some ways here. But I thought the other thing I thought, Marcus, that was interesting here is how Irenaeus is saying in section two here that a well-ordered secular government is no friend to Satan. Hmm. What Satan's interested in is chaos, disorder, yep. and people doing their own thing. Yeah, I'm surprised he doesn't have links to Romans. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He could have yeah. had foundation from, from Paul, and he doesn't make those connections there, but they're definitely there. Uh, so, yeah, like at the very bottom here, uh, for the benefit then of the Gentiles is earthly royalty established by God and not by the devil who is never at all at rest. Um, yes, neither will he have the very Gentiles to go on quietly. It's <laughs> fascinating. So the devil is not the founder of the Roman Empire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, sometimes, oh, I got to be careful here. I'm, I'm not against the social teaching of the church by any means. I'm not against efforts to overturn bad laws. I'm not against any of that. I'm not against efforts that people gather together and try and make our government more in line with it. I'm not against any of that. But it seems to me that what's more important, the bottom line is that we live according to our faith, regardless of what our government is. That's the key. And if it gets us in trouble, it gets us in trouble. That's right. The church's role is not to manage secular government. Yeah. It's not, it's not the auditor of secular government. It's not to promote a form of government. And, uh, you know, in my view, that the goal of the United States, I don't see it's a part of our Constitution to force democracy on the rest of the world. You know, we got to live it according to ourselves. You know, we're not doing a very yeah. good job at it right now. But, uh, but whatever government we find ourselves in, we, we try and live our faith. I mean, that's, that's what he said earlier about humility. You know, he talked about humility in every way to be lowly minded. Okay. All right. Well, there's a couple of things there. I, I hope we riled up a few feathers there. But um, <laughs> now we're going to get into, and again, we're not going to go into a lot of details, but just there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine points that he touches on about the devil. And we thought we would just point these out. Because again, um, there are even Christians that I think wonder, is the devil real? Is the devil alive? Is the devil, you know, these whole issues. And so these are some things that, Monsignor, it seems to me that Irenaeus basically expresses as his assumption about the devil. And the first is, and I don't have an exact quote for this, but this is the underlying thing that we have to take away from this. As far as Irenaeus is concerned, that the devil is very real. And he assumes that even his enemies accept the reality of that, though they may have a different that's, view yeah. of him. Yeah, no, that's right. And of course, we have to deal in our time with the attitude that 
the devil is a is a poetic creation um, to describe the darker side of our nature. Um, that won't cut it. Yeah, there's been so much in since the Enlightenment, particularly in so many avenues of our studies. When you go to college, that do everything possible to laugh at the idea that the devil exists, to put us down for that. Um, I'm pretty sure I mentioned last week Paul Harvey's article that you can find on the internet. Paul Harvey, the radio broadcaster who once wrote, uh, gave a speech on what he would do if he were the devil, and he said, the first thing I would do is convince the world I don't exist. And, and you know, I, I think Newman, I think you mentioned that Newman even said the same thing. And, and that's it. That's the number one lie. But there's another lie that I've heard that's kind of the other extreme. And I've heard this from pulpits. I've heard Catholic priests kind of say this. And I've heard Protestant ministers kind of say this. And they, they end up saying, now, wait a second. The devil's defeated. So don't give him too much attention. Don't give him too much credit. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody kind of make that reference. Oh, sure. Yeah. Why would they make that reference? Reference. Well, we talked a little bit about that earlier, uh, how um, I suppose they don't want people messing around in the darker side of, um, you know, yeah. they, the spiritual, spiritualism and all that sort of thing. But, they, but they, it's, it's a mistake to down to, you know, yeah. So these are the one stream of denying he exists. He's just a figment of, 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 of literary exaggeration to explain the dark side of our soul. Or the other thing is, you know, he's real, but, but don't get too caught up in him. Just, just, just don't. He's defeated. Don't worry about him. And it might be from pastoral work, they've encountered a few people that are told, so worried about the devil and, and his horde and demons that they... They end up going from that state because that somewhere between those two extremes is a reality of recognizing that the devil is very much alive and well. And personally, I feel more today than than so much in the last two thousand years. And we'll get to that. Well, and you know, I Marcus, I because we're doing a patristics thing here. I I just mentioned. Um, um, in the next century or so, um, well, the fourth century, people are going to be talking about St. Martin of Tours and the vision that he had where he was visited by Christ one night in his dream and Christ told him to do all these things and Christ was dressed in very regally and gown and all that and and um, Martin said, unless I see the dear mark, the, the tokens of your passion, called the dear marks of your passion, I don't believe that you're Christ. And at that point, the vision evaporated and there was a stink in the room. <laughs> and it was Satan. And I think, I think these early Christians truly believe that the devil still roams. And he tries to impersonate Christ. When people report apparitions, 
that they've had from Christ, just like you talked about. But they, it's gone on in the century since. Yeah. Mary and, and and that when the church examines them, there are, when you read the reports, there are sometimes they say this was the devil. The person that reported having a vision of Mary that no, 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 yeah. this was this was not her. This was of the devil. When when they're saying that, they're affirming the reality of the devil and the devil imitating. So we're going back to we live in a day when we don't take this seriously. And and but in Aaron's day, they took it seriously. A second thing he says on page five oh six is. In the middle is that the devil is an apostate angel. As to the devil being, he as being an apostate angel. So just pause there. Who is the devil? Is he a human being? Is he divine? You know, the the different views. Is he equal to God? Is he black and white? As the Gnostics were kind of good. No, he's, he's a creation of God. And we know most of us know the story the, about how the devil fell. And you, can, you, you know that St. Irenaeus, as a young man, back in, um, ba- back in Smyrna, he was learning from Polycarp, who learned it from St. John, who wrote about it in Revelation. Yeah. I'm sure they took careful notes for, for that lecture. Right. We'll get to that. A little bit next week when we talk about that. The third thing he goes on in that same paragraph is to talk about the devil's limited powers. He says, as to the devil, he as being an apostate angel, hath that power only which he discloses in the beginning to seduce and withdraw man's mind unto transgression of God's commandments and gradually to bind the hearts of such as make it their business to serve him, to the forgetting of the true God and the worshiping of Satan himself as God. That, to me, is so descriptive of what we're seeing in spades today. You know, St. Irenaeus, um, and he basically is saying through this, the devil doesn't have power over creation because he's a creature himself. All he can do, the devil's power is in deception. Um, he can only deceive. That's the only weapon he's got in his in his, in his um, case. He he can't manipulate creation. So the he can re- only deceive, deceive the will, the human will. Okay. So in other words, the realm in which the devil can influence is not the objective realm. That's right. I think Irenaeus would agree with that. It's the subjective realm. So So in ourselves. Yeah. The devil doesn't create an earthquake or a volcano or a terrible storm. Um, The devil only can influence how people interpret things like that. He can affect how we feel, what we think, our emotions. And the reason I say that is that we live at a time when exponentially people in our culture 
are denying the objective and replacing it by the subjective. Basing everything on, even in the courts, what's happening in the internet, canceling people because they're because the emphasis is on what people feel about themselves, not what they objectively are. And the devil is having a heyday. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And that's what Irenaeus is just saying yeah. here. To seduce and withdraw man's mind unto transgression of God's commandments and gradually to blind the hearts of such as make it their business to serve him to the forgetting of the true God and the worshiping of Satan himself as God. That's where we are. It's terrifying. Yeah. And it wasn't that Irenaeus in his own day wasn't confronting really bizarre things, but I don't yeah. think Irenaeus would have imagined I, where we are today. No. You know. No. And the reason and the is... Very, and the very enemies, the, his very opponents now sit in professorships of divinity and theology in our, in our universities. He couldn't have imagined that. There was some very uh, forward-looking authors, Huxley and what's his name? My name is, is, uh, is 1984 and Brave New World. Oh, um... My mind is, I'm having a senior moment here, you know. Me too. There's Huxley and, uh, oh, come on. Anyway, somebody watching us, but my point in this is when they wrote in Brave New World or in 1984, a, a vision of the future of a world gone bad, when they described the world, they didn't even imagine it to contain what's happening today in our culture. They didn't, they didn't really imagine that we'd mm -hmm. have laws. It's, it's crazy. And why is this? Well, number four, it's because the devil is a liar. And this is the probably the biggest section that... Uh, Irenaeus covers beginning on page 502, we go back up a little bit, 502, all the way to 505, beginning with chapter 28, all the way through chapter, excuse me, chapter 23, section 1, all the way through 24.1. He just gives all kinds of examples there of the way in which the devil lies. And he, he lied to Adam and Eve in the garden. He lied to Christ yeah. at the temptation. And, you know, he continues. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't believe the devil exists and he influences your subjective reality, your subjective person, and you don't believe he's there, then are you aware of the lies that he's putting? You know, I grew up yeah. I grew up 
uh, uh, as you did too, uh, my, the main literature that fed me as a young man was the things called cartoons. <laughs> the, the depth of li literature was cartoons. And I remember seeing a cartoon that showed a person with an angel on one shoulder and a little devil on the other. You've seen that picture, right? It's a part of our, it's a part of our uh, enculturation. Yeah. And so you have this, the, the cartoonist would make this person struggling between the devil, the angel over here and the devil whispering in this year. And so we were brought up as children to see that. And so we immediately think that's a bunch of hooey. That's just a cartoon. That's what he's saying is true. And one of the books that really influenced me on my journey into the church that took that very seriously was St. Francis de Sales' book on Introduction to the Devout Life. Uh -huh. He deals very directly with the inspiration of God and the temptation. And how do you discern between those two things? Because we're getting them all the time. And now in spades because of the internet. And so Irenaeus is saying, yeah, guys, he's a liar. Uh, you, you know, Marcus, I, I was fascinated with his, uh, on page 503, um, chapter 33, one, he's talking about the devil um, in paradise. Um, first, you see, in God's own paradise, he was disputing about God as though he were absent, for he knew not the greatness of God. Um, then afterwards, learning from himself, learning from herself that the Lord had said that if they had tasted of the aforesaid tree, they would die. The third thing was his telling a lie and saying, ye shall not surely die. I had to think through that really carefully to, yeah. because Irenaeus mentions three lies there. And I, so here's my three lies. I don't know if you can see it in there. Uh, first of all, the devil says to Adam and Eve, did God really tell you not to eat that fruit from that tree? And his second lie is, well, you won't die if you eat it. And his third lie is, you won't die anyway. You're not subject to death. Yeah. And I just... I. Uh, that, that's what I think Irenaeus is breaking out here. Um, um, and I'm fascinated with that. Well, and, and another thing, yeah. I'm just along with that, that jumped out at me, um, which reminds me of, of the Psalms, where it talks about people living as if God doesn't hear or see them. Right? He says, first, you see, in God's own paradise, he was disputing about God as though he were absent. Yes. <laughs> and that's what the psalmists point out to the, the fools that don't believe in God. They live, God doesn't see me doing this. God doesn't know this. But the constant message of Scripture is he does know. Yeah. He's very intimate with us. The mystery of God's love is his intimacy with us. And Jesus describes it in the Sermon on the Mount so many different ways, counting every hair on our head. Some of us got a little more than others. I won't go there, though. But, uh, 
Uh, I'm going to put my cap on if you're not careful. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, let's let's move on. We got the time. Um, the the fifth point is very fascinating on page five hundred six, um, and I'm assuming all of you watching that that uh, you're looking at these things for yourself if you're if you are interested. But chapter twenty four, section four, he talks about the idea that the devil is driven by envy of man. So on the bottom. Yeah. The devil being one of those angels who are set over the breath of the air, as the Apostle Paul in his letter for the Ephesians hath declared, envying man became a rebel against the divine law, for envy is alien from God. And because through man was his rebellion exposed, we're getting into the, I think, uh, another point that I put in my list here. So let's pause there for a second. Uh, the envy, envy, envy. What was, Why was the devil envious of man, Monsignor? Why was the devil envious of man? Um, is it in Hebrews where um, the creation is talked about and how the angels, the angels saw that God that God had lifted man up to a higher place. Yeah, doesn't C.S. Lewis deal with that too? Seems like C.S. Yeah. Lewis dealt dealt with that in either his space trilogies or or something. He talks about that so, that God would would spend time with these creatures, would lower himself. Yeah, to be with these creatures. The, the you know the, the angels yearned to look into these things, but they didn't. They didn't have access to, or they they were the servants of those men that were the human creation. They were going to. They were assigned to them. So that's where I, I would think Irenaeus is talking about envy, because Satan was an angel, and he just couldn't stand it. It's interesting to reflect on that, to see with one, to identify an aspect of human culture that has been so much a part of our civilizations, and that is this class system amongst people. Envy, power, yeah. blood, one group of people over another, won't even talk to them. I mean, in a way, that's the idea that is behind the play Pygmalion that was made into the movie My Fair Lady. Can, can you take a street woman and oh, make yes. her into a yeah. princess? Can you do that? You know, and that culture didn't believe it could be done because they were so believing in the reality of these layers of people. Of course, none of that exists in the church, we know. <laughs> There's a word for it called clericalism, but we won't go there. And then But yeah, and then and then you know, in that um see we're we're on page five oh six there. Um yeah, yeah. That well, I guess it's in the next section. Um, um yeah, we're at five oh six uh, section four. 
um, because true man was his rebellion exposed and man became the test whereby his mind was reproved. So basically the human creation is what undid Satan. <laughs> um, he was basically caught out for trying to disorder it. I saw that was interesting yeah. too. Yeah, I'd never seen that. He yeah. did. He did accordingly frame himself more and more contrary to man, envying his life and wishing to shut him up under his own rebellious power. And on the other hand, the framer of all, the Word of God, by man overcoming him and proving him a rebel, made him subject unto man. The turning of the tides on devil. The, yeah. the next topic which kind of goes with that is this idea that the devil did not know of his own condemnation. And you find this, if you jump way ahead to 512, at the bottom, Irenaeus is quoting Justin, when he says, Well said, Justin, before the Lord's coming, Satan never durst blaspheme God as not yet knowing his own condemnation. How that both in parables and in allegories it is so affirmed of him in the prophets, but since the coming of the Lord, he plainly learning from Christ's and his apostles' discourses that everlasting fire is prepared for him and departing as he doth from God of his own will. I mean, that's an interesting uh, thought, that the devil didn't even realize it. I know. I was, I was amazed by that. And then... You know, um, I was kind of curious about following this up again because I was interested, you know, um, you see the editor didn't give us much information. All he put was St. Justin next to the, for the footnote. I wanted to trace that out a little bit more. And I was really interested in that. That's a lost writing of St. Justin. We don't have it. Hmm. But this very quote that you read we find quoted in Eusebius of Caesarea um, about 125 years later or so. Um, he is reading, he's got, obviously he's got a copy of St. Irenaeus's Against Heresies in his hand because he actually quotes that in um, his church history, book four, chapter 18. And he, he just literally quotes that, um, that passage. And to me that, was an interesting thing about how here we see Justin Martyr being read by Irenaeus and how carefully Irenaeus was read by Eusebius. Um, uh, so, you know, the fathers are reading each other as limited as book yeah. publishing is at this point. Yeah. Um, Today we take it yeah. also for granted, but at the time, yeah. Um, I mean, if you will, it's the, it's it's the winnowing system of those writers whose writings were affirmed and appreciated, and so they therefore they were preserved, mm -hmm. uh, and and some were not. And we see this whole book is about pointing out that the Gnostics' writings are not trustworthy. But as you said in this hint, he is saying, well said, Justin. Yeah. <laughs> and then that, it's just fascinating to me. Because remember, <laughs> Justin, you know, just think about Justin. Um, he's pr 
probably just a layman, was just a layman. Um, he, he came from, um, he, he came from uh, Palestine. He was converted in Ephesus. And then he went to Rome and he started a Christian school. Um, and we see him active in the middle of the second century um, writing. And, and well, so well informed of the Greek philosophies and all that. Yeah, he was fully trained yeah. in, in all these things. And then in his searching, he was it that he sought out Judaism first and then became a Christian because he had his his letter with with uh, that's right. It, that's one thing that if people want to really get into some read, fun reading, Saint Justin's dialogue with Trifo is 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 his conversion story. He could have been on the journey home. <laughs> <laughs> but he's having this dialogue with a, with a, a rabbi on the beach in uh, Ephesus. It's a fascinating story. All right. Well, then let's, let's pull this to a close. So we've just covered a number of things that maybe, on the one hand, those of us that are faithful, you know, Christians today take for granted about the devil, and many today doubt, but he emphasizes that the devil's very real, he's a fallen angel, has limited powers, and what he does do, he's a liar, and he's driven by envy of us. He didn't even really, he's not omniscient. He didn't know his own condemnation and said, what do you mean there's a fire waiting for me? He discovers that. But his rebellion was exposed by man and then for made subject unto man. And then the last thing that we talked about last week is that the devil was defeated by our Lord in the temptation. And therefore, Irenaeus says that he is bound. Well, and that's something that we could pick up again, because that the question of how, in what sense is the devil bound now? Yeah, this is Irenaeus yeah. speaking in the second century. What about now in the 21st century? How does this connect with the apocalypse when, when uh, our Lord, speaking with John, recognizes, affirms in the Revelation 20, the binding of Satan, and then eventually says there will come a time at the end of the thousand years when the devil is loosed. How do we interpret that to our day and age? So he, he glimpses this, but I think, Monsignor, we'll leave that to our next discussion yeah. when we get into the end times and Arenaeus's view of that. All right. So if you would, why don't you close us with prayer, Monsignor? Okay. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, you call St. Irenaeus to uphold your truth and bring peace to your church. By his prayers, renew us in faith and love, that we may always be intent on fostering unity and peace. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor, and thanks all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. We'll look forward to joining you again next week. We'll pretty much pick up with the same chapters, but we'll move forward and, and look first at Irenaeus' discussion of the Antichrist.
So we'll see you then. Okay.